today about being stewards of God's creation. We've seen that God's created the earth. He created it in six days. We talked about the age of the earth last time, but what, how is man to rule the earth? What is his function as a steward? That's what I want to talk about today. So here's our agenda. Lord willing, with the time we have left, we're going to talk we're going to look first at the original charge given to man and woman in Genesis 1, see how that relates to man's rule and stewardship. We'll second discuss biblical principles that we need to remember as Christians when we face environmental issues today. And then third, we'll talk about that ever-present issue in today's media, global warming or climate change. What does the Bible have to say about that? How should we respond? Let's pray now before we go forward. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it gives us the light that shows us the path to walk, even when it comes to the environment. So I pray that, be able to help, that you would help me to be able to explain this well and help those who listen take it seriously and to think about their own stewardship. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1, where we're going to look at that original charge from God to man and woman. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31 is what we're going to be reading. We've read this section before, but we're going to come at it with fresh eyes, thinking specifically about man's commissioned rule. So starting in verse 26 in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed it shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life i have given every green plant for food and it was so god saw all that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day as I said, we've looked at this passage before, but let's make some fresh observations. Notice the first thing that's said about man in verse 26. He is made in the image of God. He's going to be made in the image of God. Notice also that when God creates, man's, God creates mankind, he defines man's relationship to the animals. Notice the relationship. Man is to exercise rule over them. And which animals? According to the passage, it's all of them. Every living thing that moves, every living creature. Notice what else man is given dominion over. All the earth. Not just a portion of it, but all the earth, God says. And notice the different commands God gives to man and woman in this passage. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Kind of like a blessing and a command mixed together. Subdue the earth and rule over all the animals of the earth. God also identifies a food source in this passage. Notice it's plants. We have the plants that yield seed and the trees that yield seed. For whom are these plants food? 
Notice it is for both man and the animals. God says this will be food for you and it will be food for them. And how does God describe this created order he's inaugurated? Very good. Now let's ask some interpretation questions now. What part of being made in God's image is most emphasized in this passage? Something we talked about before, what do you think? It's his rule. God is a ruler and man is made an under ruler. Man is commissioned by God, made by God to rule over the earth at man's creation. But what does it mean to rule? Well, we can think about what the word rule itself means. It means to have authority. It means to lead. It means to direct the use of resources. Such a rule is man's job. Man, as God's underruler, is going to have authority to decide what to do with what's on the earth. He's the ruler. We notice also that God tells man to subdue the earth. But what does it mean to subdue? Well, the word subdue has the idea of conquer, make something subject to you, take command over it. This is also man's job with the earth. But to take command of something and to rule it well, what are you going to need to acquire? Well, you're going to need some resources to help you accomplish that task, and you're going to need some knowledge on how to do it. Therefore, another thing that's going to characterize man's rule is that he will need to steady creation in order to know how to direct it and how to make the most use of it. Man will also likely need to gather resources in order to make tools to allow him to further direct and rule creation. But man can't know information or gather resources like God can. God can do so omnipotently and from a distance. How will man need to rule? Well, it's gonna to have to be direct. It's gonna be up close. It's gonna to have to be with man's very hands on creation. This will characterize his rule. Now, Genesis 2 gives us more information about what commanding and subduing will look like for man. Look over at Genesis 2 for just a second. Genesis 2.15. This is describing the creation of man. And when talking about Adam being <clears throat> placed in the Garden of Eden, God reveals the, the designed role for Adam. What is Adam designed to do according to Genesis 2.15? He's designed to cultivate the garden and keep it. Now, these are poignant terms because they imply something about the future. Man's role in the garden and on the earth in general is forward thinking. It is an accountable rule. It's both those things. It's looking at the future. And because God has given him this commission, the man is responsible to God for how he does it. You see, as man exercises authority over the earth, he is going to conquer it, but not for the purpose of merely exploiting and disposing of it. Rather, man is to develop the creation, even as he makes use of it and enjoys it. 
Man is accountable for maintaining and improving the creation for the future, especially for his own descendants. And we see this at the very beginning with Adam. Now, there's something else here in chapter 2. Look down to verses 19 and 20. What task is Adam specifically given there? If you notice, this is where God has Adam name the animals or certain kinds of animals. And have you ever wondered how Adam did this? Did he just pull names out of a hat? Well, actually, it's not too hard to imagine because we can see Adam's thought process in naming when it comes to the creation of woman. Remember what Adam says whenever he sees woman, when God brings her to him? Adam says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because he gives a reason because she was taken out of man. So the name is not random. It's actually very descriptive of the creature. The man observed the woman, he studied the woman, and he came up with an appropriate name for her. Adam likely did the same thing with all the animals, just as taxonomists do today with their crazy Latin names. Assuredly, this work of study and classification is part of man's rule as well. Not just of the animals, but of all the other things that are part of nature and even the very things that man creates. Man studies, man classifies. God endowed man with this intelligence to do so. Naming something, by the way, what is that a symbol of? Ownership, authority. Yeah, uh, some degree of authority. And we see that in Genesis, God names man and he also names certain parts of creation but for other things god leaves the naming to man and this is manifest of man's delegated authority over the earth and its creatures as god's vice authority so we're getting a more complete picture of what it means for man to rule the earth man decides what to do with the earth with its animals and with its resources Man gains mastery over various parts of creation through personal work and study. Man develops and maintains the earth and its resources with his own future and multiplication in mind. Man observes and classifies the various parts of creation, but man is accountable to God for how he rules creation. You may notice that, just as an aside, all of these aspects of ruling require work. We don't want to miss the fact that Adam and Eve were created to work before the fall. But this work for them was never frustrating or merely arduous. It was enjoyable. It was doable. It was fulfilling. It's only later that work was cursed. But even with the curse that comes upon work, it is redeemed for the Christian so that we can do all our work today, even the ruling of creation, with joy and do it as unto the Lord. But back to our picture of ruling. Is man still ruling in these same ways that we've identified today? Well, I would say the answer is yes. Our economies and technologies and research and education and food and machines and refining, they're all examples of man exercising the dominion that God gave man over the earth and its creatures. These methods of ruling are actually glorifying to God since they are a fulfillment of his original charge. But there is an important difference today in man's exercising dominion 
and how it was originally given in the garden. And what is that great difference? I think we know. It's sin. It's the curse that has come upon man and all the world. Even though man is still steward of the earth, he now rules sinfully, selfishly, and recklessly. Moreover, the ruling and development of creation is now painful and tedious. The world itself is subject to corruption in every quarter, and in some ways it resists man's rule. And we see the implications of this, and we see examples of this all over the world. We have lands becoming overworked and unusable. We have invasive species appearing and wreaking havoc on environments. There's competition, there's conflict, there's bloodshed even when it comes to the Earth's limited resources. Man even tries to turn his fellow man into a resource through slavery. Pollution makes water unclean, undrinkable. There are natural disasters and many other things. As a result, many environmental and social movements have risen today to address these issues, to counteract, to combat these issues. And we are daily urged to donate money or take part in these causes. Governments, too, have gotten involved in environmentalism through regulation and conservation. Businesses, too, it's become more popular for them to go green or at least have some environmental concern. So what do we do now in a cursed world? What should we do as Christians when it comes to ruling or stewarding a corrupted earth? How should we interact with environmental issues today? What would certainly clear from Genesis 1 is that the mandate to rule the earth well continues. This was not abrogated. The earth is still for man. It's still for us. And we are still accountable to God for the way we use, the way we develop, and the way we maintain the earth. However, there are certain promises that come from God that are important for us to remember when we consider various environmental issues and causes. And I want to show you those two promises. The first one appears in Genesis 8. So please turn over there. Genesis 8, verses 20 to the beginning of chapter 9. Genesis 8. This is right after the flood. This is what God says to Noah after the great flood subsides from the earth. This will be around 2350 BC. Look what it says starting in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma, and Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. 
and we'll stop there. Now some quick observations on this passage. Notice what promises God makes to Noah and his family. He says, I'm never going to curse the ground again on account of man. I'll never destroy the whole earth with water again, he says, as I have done. And I will always uphold the earth's natural cycles of seasons and days while the earth remains. Now, what are the conditions that God gives for these promises? Do you see them? This is one of those trick questions. There are no conditions, right? Because it says, actually, one of the reasons given is that man is evil from his youth. That hardly seems like a condition. No, these promises are given in spite of man's evil, not if man just proves himself to do better. There are no conditions for these promises. Notice that one command from Genesis 1 is nonetheless repeated here. Be fruitful and multiply. And notice that man is given a new level of authority. Man is given the authority to eat animals. They are given to man just as the plants were. So this is an important passage when it comes to thinking about the environment. God promises, despite man's rule, or despite man's evil and misrule of the earth, to nonetheless preserve the earth and its cycles while the earth remains. And he promises never again to destroy the earth with water. Now, someone might say, all right, this passage promises that God won't destroy the earth, but maybe we can still destroy the earth. And we'll nullify his promises to preserve the earth. But this cannot be. We won't be the ones to destroy the earth because God has already promised in another place how the earth will be destroyed. And how will that be? That will be with fire. And this we see clearly in the second passage I want us to look at. That's 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's look at two verses there. 2 Peter 3, verses 7 and 10. Second Peter three. I'll read the two verses. Verse seven. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, how interesting. God says the earth is reserved to be destroyed in a certain way. The earth will not be destroyed by an alien invasion, the melting of the ice caps or a giant asteroid. God himself will destroy the earth with fire on the allotted day of judgment. And according to Revelation 20, that would be at the end of Christ's millennial kingdom and the final satanic rebellion. So these two promises are important to keep in mind when it comes to thinking about the environment. On the one hand, we have God's promise that he will preserve the earth. On the other hand, we have God's promise that he will destroy the earth, but only on in a ordained day. Now, in light of these promises, does this mean it doesn't matter what we do with the earth? I mean, just go ahead and trash it because it's going to stick around until God destroys it. Is that what we should do? Well, of course not, because though the earth won't pass away until God says so, 
says so, we can sure make the earth or certain parts of it a lot worse for ourselves. And I don't know about you, but I'd like to live in a world where I don't have to put on a mask just to go outside in my smoggy city. Or I'd like to live in a world where I don't have to be careful not to light my tap water on fire due to the chemicals that are in. Such reckless abuse of the Earth's resources would not only be unwise, it would actually be a violation of the Genesis 1 mandate. We are accountable for how we rule the Earth, and polluting it to the extreme would bring the condemnation of God. Now, does that mean, on the flip side, we should go as green as possible? Not necessarily. Acting wisely as rulers of a cursed earth means that we're often going to find ourselves in the situation that Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, describes. Now, let me read those verses to you. You don't have to turn there. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 8, Solomon says, There's an appointed time for everything, and there's a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Good rule of the earth will mean that sometimes it's best to cut down the trees, but other times it's best to leave the trees or even to plant more. Sometimes it will be better to use fossil fuels and sometimes it'll be better not to. We're going to have to we're going to have to act differently depending on the situation. Now, how will we know what is best in each situation? Situations change. Their correct answer is going to be different. How do we know what the correct answer is? Well, aside from what I've already shared up to this point in the class, let me share with you four more principles from the scriptures that will help us decide what is the right way to steward the earth in a given situation. Four principles from the scriptures for stewarding the earth. Number one, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always of first importance. We are not on earth ultimately to preserve the environment, to fix governments or end all social ills. We're here to proclaim salvation in Jesus Christ. The earth and everyone on it will ultimately perish, but each person's soul is eternal. We are to reach those souls. We are first and foremost about making disciples. That is our commission. We help the environment where we can. We help social issues where we can. But we can't, we can't afford to embrace every environmental and social initiative. Our time, our energy, our money are limited, both individually and as a church. And those resources must go chiefly towards the multiplication of the gospel, the spread of the salvation message. So number one, the gospel of salvation is always primary. This will help us decide through environmental issues. Number two, we must remember that man is the most important part of creation. 
there are some environmentalists who see mankind as the ultimate problem. They say, we need to keep these forests pristine for the sake of the animals, for the sake of the plants. Just think of how much the ecosystem has been disturbed by man moving into the area. Well, this reasoning fails to consider what we've read in Genesis 1. Man is told to fill the earth and subdue it. The whole earth has been put under man's authority for him to direct, to live in, and use. We were not made to serve the animals or the plants, but to act as stewards of them. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we treat animals cruelly or callously, or that we just devastate environments and drive scores of species to extinction. <clears throat> but it does mean we have to correctly arrange our priorities. When it comes to valuing the parts of creation, man is the most important part. Furthermore, while it is part of some religions, especially in Asia, to treat the earth or nature as a sentient being to be honored or feared, we must remember it is not nature that we are accountable to. It is God. Exodus 20, 10 commandments, which I know Calvary's been going through lately. These commandments remind us that we have no other God except Yahweh. We are to fear and serve him, not Mother Earth, not the local river God, not the precious jaguars, and not the giant redwoods. We are stewards accountable to the creator, not nature, not created things. And Romans 1 also emphasizes this concept. So number one, the gospel's ultimate priority. Number two, man is the most important part of creation. Number three, serving your fellow man means wisely taking care of the earth and its resources. And this is where we can affirm a number of environmental initiatives. Consider what Philippians chapter two, verses three to five says. Philippians two, verses three to five says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Abuse of the earth and its resources will make life worse for everyone. For example, if you overfish, you may make a killing in the short run financially, but in the long run, everyone, including you, will suffer. So Christians mu must not act this way. In fact, we will actually be witnesses of the gospel and how we care for our fellow man in our environmental choices. I like what one brother once said in a discussion about global warming. He said, environmental questions must be addressed with one anothering in mind. We have to ask, how will I be loving or hating my neighbor by pursuing this initiative or not? Now, again, gospel is first priority. But we are still considering our fellow man, even when it comes to the environment. This is not for the sake of Mother Earth. This is for the sake of our neighbor. That's our third principle. And here's the fourth one I would like to bring to your attention. Christians must obey the government's environmental mandates. Governments are a gift from God. They, they protect us from living in a world of anarchy. But 
governments are imperfect and their environmental policies are no exception. However, we have to remember the exhortation, the command given to us by God in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. We are commanded as believers to submit for the Lord's sake to the governing authorities. They are put in place by God. And so by submitting to them, you actually obey and please God. Moreover, obeying the government prevents us from unnecessarily suffering governmental wrath, penalties, which would only hamper our ability to make disciples. Obeying the government keeps our consciences clean, and it silences the talk of foolish men who oppose Christ. They can't blame us for disobeying the government. If our rulers then decide that we have to install special filters on our cars or that we have to pay some pollution tax, that's okay. We can submit to that. We don't need to grumble against God's sovereignty. We don't, dis we don't disobey God's representatives. For the Lord's sake, we show honor to the government, imperfect as it is, and its environmentally oriented laws. Now, if there's a bad law in our government, in our society, we have certain avenues for affecting change, but that's not the ultimate priority. The ultimate priority is the gospel. So we want to remember these four principles. The gospel is ultimate importance. Man is the most important part of creation. Loving your neighbor is going to mean taking care of the earth. And we are to obey the government's environmental policies. Now, what about the big issue, though, in today's media? Global warming. What should Christians do when it comes to climate change? How does that interact with our priority of the gospel? We, of course, could take a long time to talk about this issue, but let me just say a few things. There's a lot of misinformation when it comes to global warming, climate change. So let me give you three quick facts that we should remember regarding climate change so that we know how to act wisely in response. First, climate change is technically real. I know climate change, global warming, it's often spoken by maybe groups or people that we think of as being very anti-God. And we say, oh, you know, they're always talking about climate change. I'm sure it's made up. Well, actually, it's not. This is, according to a very, let me say it this way, according to a very credible and widely recognized study, the average global surface temperature has increased by 1.2 degrees Fahrenheit since 1880. This is well-recognized. Conservative evangelical groups recognize this. Answers in Genesis recognizes this. We don't have to deny this. The world is getting warmer. The question is, is it a big deal? Well, that depends on your worldview. If you happen to have a secularist, naturalist, evolutionary worldview, then you may believe that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. It was created by random chance. Therefore, temperatures on the Earth are assumed to have very gradually changed over millions of years. A temperature increase over the last century then would be a very rapid and serious development. It could be the beginning of the end. I mean, it's only a miracle that life originated here in the first place, and it was under very precise conditions. If those conditions change even a little bit, we might all be doomed. Global warming is a big deal, if that's your worldview. But if you believe the truth, if you understand that God made a young earth, and it is resilient and maintained by God, this temperature change is not nearly as concerning. 
I'm not saying it's not concerning at all, but certainly the situation is not as dire as it might appear. So first, we should remember that climate change is technically real. Second thing we should remember though is that climate change is not well understood. Despite the impression we get from the media today, scientists don't have a firm grasp on climate change or what causes it. We know greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, we know that they're involved, but are they an effect or are they a cause? They may be correlated, but does that mean causation? And how much are they an influence if they are a cause? We know solar activity and other factors also play a role in climate, but why or how much is not currently known. Moreover, the data that we do have, that scientists do have for figuring out these questions is extremely limited. So assumptions are gonna play a very pivotal role in quote unquote findings. That's why we see a huge variance in predictions about the effects of global warming on the earth. There is good reason to believe based on some historical observations of the last 2000 years that the earth goes through cycles of warming and cooling. It could be that the global warming we're experiencing is just another part of the earth's natural cycles and that it's gonna happen regardless of what we do. But we don't know. We don't really know. More research is needed. So this is another thing we need to remember. People will like to make dogmatic statements about global warming and climate change, but we just don't know very much about it. It's gonna take more study. Number three though, and this is what makes it the hard, this is what makes it hard. The climate change debate is very emotionally, politically, and financially charged. As you can guess, there's a great deal of money at stake in the question of climate change. Environmental organizations, fossil fuel companies, they're often more interested in seeing their interests supported rather than arriving at real answers about climate change. Additionally, the reporting on global warming is full of cherry-picked data, emotional manipulation, browbeating, recency bias, that is, you just remember what happened recently and you don't remember the, the, the longer trends and other obvious logical fallacies. Bottom line, we should be very cautious with what we see reported in the media about climate change. And from both sides, don't just say, ah, oh, you know, it's always the liberals, they're always, they're always skewing the information. Well, remember that those who are against, who, who downplay climate change, many of them have a reason for doing so. They have a bias. So we want to be cautious. We don't want to be naive. And where we do see information reported, we want to, we want to check it. We want to see if it really is reliable information. So those are just three facts to remember when it comes to global warming and climate change. It is a difficult issue. It's one that we're going to see continue to unfold as we get more information about our Earth, about our world. But we do thank the Lord for his promises. And we do thank the Lord that we have his sure word. There's a lot of things that are unsure when it comes to the environment and climate change. But we know that the Lord is sure and that his word is trustworthy. As we navigate the various and difficult environmental questions today, we can stand on the promises and principles of God's word. But it all does come down to stewardship. The world is for our use but we are accountable to God for how we use it. Now, 
Before we finish today, let's take a look at a few further application questions. Here's uh, my first one here. Christians are often seen as anti-environmentalist. Why is this the case? What do you think? Yes, yeah, Steve. Okay. Hmm. Hmm. Mm. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those are both useful things you shared, Steve. Uh, that's a useful clarification between the terms climate change and global warming. Global warming is a piece of climate change. We can understand climate change and talk about changes in general, what global warming talks about specifically temperatures rising. But sometimes those terms are used, um, one term is used when talking about the other. So they are, it is useful to have that distinction. But your other point is also, I think, apt. And that is that because we have a different focus than most of the world, uh, many, as you were saying, Steve, consider that this world will last forever. They expect it to last forever, but we have this perspective that says, no, it's coming to an end. They, they think, therefore, based on how we use the resources, that we must be anti-environmentalist. And to be, to be true, some Christians do have an anti-environmentalist perspective. They go too far in, in understanding the earth being, in a sense, disposable. And they do treat the earth in an improper way. But I think most of it, it comes down to misunderstanding. When you're all about the gospel, and when you consider man the most important priority of creation, this is just going to, this is going to be incomprehensible to many environmentalists. They, they will say, oh, well, surely you don't care about the earth or stewarding its resources. And it's just the nature of our age that even if you disagree with somebody a little bit, they assume that you are a mortal enemy. You don't sign up for my cause, it must be because you hate the earth and you don't care about the environment. But we understand that. We just want to be ready for that. Roy, you want to say something? Hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Yeah, I think you bring up some good points, Roy, just to repeat them real quickly. You talk about how environmentalists will often put animals in the environment above man, and they'll be so uh, so zealous to get rid of things like fossil fuels that they don't consider the implications of, of how man will suffer because of that. And this is why I say the answer for what will be the best way to steward the earth is going to be different depending on the circumstance. Maybe it does make sense in the United States with our more advanced infrastructure and uh, technology for us to go more green because we can do that with, with less consequences. But in, in developing countries, maybe that's gonna, it's not gonna be reasonable. That's gonna cause some extreme suffering. So that's why I think you're right, Roy, to say what, in having a more balanced perspective, when you're when you're trying to consider your fellow man rather than specifically the animals, we care about the animals, but man is just more important. That's gonna mean that you have a more balanced view towards the environment, that, you're, that you will sometimes do what you can to protect the environment and sometimes allow the environment to suffer a little bit in order that man may, may develop. And again, this perspective is gonna be very hard for many people in the world to understand. When you're pro-human, but also pro-environment, people can't, people can't understand that. They think you must be either one or the other, but biblically, we, we in a sense are both. And let me get to another question. And hopefully you can already see the answer to this question. What are the dangers of becoming too involved in environmental causes as a church? Uh, yes. Yeah, that's it, right? The biggest danger of becoming involved in environmental causes is that it will be a, a, a diversion from and a replacement of the gospel of forgiveness of sins through Christ. And instead, instead of the gospel, it will be about saving the planet. We will divert important resources to a less important goal. And we know that this, this has happened. Unfortunately, many evangelical Christians have taken up the green movement like the social gospel as a primary, if not the primary cause that the church should embrace. Now, again, there is a, there is a place for us as Christians to care about the environment and even to, to care about social causes. But our ultimate priority is making disciples. If we try and add another priority, it's always going to result in the diminishment of making disciples. It's been tried, and it always results in the same effect, which is why we want to be on guard. We don't want to be diverted from our main mission. Another question, as we encounter people who have genuine fears about the threats of global warming, how can we use the scriptures to share the truth of the matter with them? Hopefully you can see the answer to this too. It's basically bringing them through what we've talked about today. We wanna to show them that God, God is the creator. He has great power. He has promised to sustain the creation until the consummation of Christ. But we should show them that they should fear the sure future judgment of God much more than they fear global warming. And in a sense, they should fear the greater global warming because we know that the earth is going to be consumed in fire. We want them to fear so that they can embrace the rescue. We want to show them too that Christ is the one who can bring them through the coming judgment just as the ark brought Noah and his family through. One other question here. 
The media is constantly presenting messages that promote the worship of creation rather than the creator. And how do we guard ourselves against this false influence? Again, I think the answer is somewhat simple. It is to test what we hear. We want to sift what's given to us via news outlets or even conversations with what the scripture says. And that means that we're going to have to know the scriptures. We've got to study the scriptures. We have to meditate on the scriptures so that we know what the truth is and we're not easily led astray from what is reported or what is, or what is spoken to us. Because we know that this is, this is going to continue to be an ongoing influence. The, that perspective of idolizing creation, it's going to continue. It's part of our society. But we want to be on guard against it. We want to, want to make sure that we're standing on the scripture. And we're, we're always analyzing what we see through the lens of scripture. I guess one other question to ask based on today's topic, I don't have it listed here, but it's to consider your own stewardship. Consider your family's stewardship. You are a steward, you are an under ruler as part of the many under rulers that God has allowed to be on the earth. How is your stewardship before God? Again, I'm not saying that if you fail to recycle a piece of paper that you've committed sin and you need to repent, but consider, consider your stewardship based on the principles that we've looked at today. Are you loving your neighbor with how you treat the environment? and many of those other things we've discussed. Do you have the gospel as a top priority? Or have you, have you jumped on the bandwagon of those who worship creation and fail to have a proper stewardship? I hope you will think about that today. If you have other questions about this topic, please email me. We can talk further about that. But this is the... This is basically our last lesson on creation itself. We've had eight lessons on creation. It's been a glorious study. We've seen how God has just been so good in making a very good creation. He truly put his majesty on display. But the created world did not remain the way God made it. It became tainted. Not everything stayed good because sin entered the world. So next time, we're going to begin to look at the second C of the seven C's of history, corruption, the fall of man into sin. So I hope you'll be there next week when we talk about that. Let's close in prayer. Oh Lord God, we recognize that this stewardship is a serious thing that you've given us. It is a great privilege. God, you have, you have given us a, a very exalted place as rulers of creation. And yet it is one in which we are accountable to you and one in which we must take seriously as we consider our fellow man and as we consider the, the great beauty and resources that you're given on the earth. Lord, we know that this earth is cursed and there's, there is a reckless abuse of it that takes place all around us. But we want to stand on a biblical position, not merely following one side or the other. So grant us wisdom according to your word as to how to act. And I pray, God, that you would Use us as a testimony. The world won't understand it, but as they see our love for our fellow man and our devotion to you, may they be convicted and may they give us opportunity to share with them the gospel of hope so that they might be saved of a much greater concern than merely a polluted environment. Lord, I pray that you bless Calvary and those listening today as they continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you all. Glad we could get that sound issue worked out. See you all next week. You're welcome.